All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, we're going to look there at verses 1 through 4. And I'll encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on your device so that you're able to uh, see the, the Scripture text. And uh, we've been going for some while verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and we're uh, now in chapter number 12. And we'll begin there with verse number 1, look at verses 1 through 4. There the Bible says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for how it shows us Jesus. God, we pray that you'll speak to us from it by your spirit today. And help us as we observe communion, as we worship in that way. and give ourselves to you in in uh, remembrance of the fact that you've already given yourself for us. So we pray, God, that we'll be encouraged to live in truth now. We uh, give ourselves to you in our listening, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the uh, image that we get in the text of Scripture today is that the Christian life is compared to a race that we we run uh, on, I don't know, is. New Year's Day several years ago, my son and I ran a 5K together, and it may be hard for you to imagine me doing that. It is for me, too, now with my knees like they are. But I had run a few 5Ks. This is the first one we had done together. He was a good uh, track athlete in school, and it was fun. Uh, my, I had two goals in running that 5K. One is I wanted to finish running the whole race without walking any, and also not be passed by any ladies pushing baby carriages. But I, I definitely finished running the race. I, and uh, I don't even know today, probably neither one of those goals would be realistic if I were to try to run a 5K. But it was on down near City Market. When we finished, uh, we went to Wild Wing Cafe for pancakes. So that's kind of like my uh, a good day for us. It was It was a blast. I really enjoyed it. But, you know, when we think about what this passage is trying to communicate to us, it is that, like, uh, the Christian life requires commitment and endurance, and it's comparable to a race or a journey or a trek. I think those are the ideas that you see here. And so often what we'll find in our life, and I think what this text shows us, is that there are adjustments that we make. You'll have to make adjustments to run a race and it's going to show us uh, what those adjustments are that we make so that we can continue to uh, make this journey, to be on this trek. And so the first one that you see in this passage is that we let the forerunners uh, teach us. So you remember we just went through Hebrews chapter 11, and what, what it was was a narrative of people who have run the race of faith before us and so the passage starts out saying that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses which you know I don't really take to mean so much that they're just observing us as much as it's saying that they've already run this race and they stand for us as models and examples of how we should run the race well what did we notice about those people that we saw that 
they endured, right? Sometimes it was clunky looking and difficult for them and uh, they were uneven at times and they struggled, but they persevered in their faith and that's the example that they set for us is that God takes imperfect people like you and me and he uses us and he commits to us his revelation about himself and we continue to follow him by faith that we uh we learn from <clears throat> excuse me the example of how God was blessing them by uh revelation and by grace he told them what to do and he gave them consistently the power to live it out and and to do it and so they ran their race and finished their course and they served for us as an example of faith and faith was the focal point for them. I think of it like sailors in the old days. They would navigate by the pole star, by the north star. And it was, you know, for them a fixed point that never varied. And in the same way for us, God is our fixed point. He's our true north, right? What we're, our faith is founded on is who God is, his character and his ways. And so that... That it frames for us, as we're going to see in this passage, the idea of what, what it means to be a believer, a person of faith, committed to Jesus. And thankfully, you know, we're familiar with the idea of incarnation that God put on skin, right? God became a human, and God came here to speak. And, and when Jesus spoke, he said, "This I'm telling you what my Father in heaven ha- has said is important for you to know. So God didn't leave us wondering. He didn't leave us in the dark. He came to us. And God himself came and spoke to us truth. And he said, Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. So he frames that and uh, shows us what it means to live by faith. But now the thing for us to think about is, are, are we watching or are we running? They've finished the course already. The people that have uh, lived that example before us, the, the Bible says they're our great cloud of witnesses, but now you and I are in the race. We're the ones that are huffing and puffing and blowing, right, in this uh, effort to live a life that is a life of faith. So that's the first truth I think we see in this passage about what it means to be on this journey is that others have shown us that we live by faith and by grace, that God is in, in his mercy and kindness made a way for us. But now we are the people who get up every day with the dedication to live a particular life of worship and witness. And, and uh, that's what Jonathan was talking about early, earlier. It's not an isolated thing that we do for an hour on Sunday. And, and really, you know, we've talked about this before too. The disadvantage of worship is I have a microphone and you don't, right? So I talk, 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 you listen, listen, listen. But um, small group Bible study permits you to be uh, involved more, and it's why it's important. Discipleship is something that happens not just in uh, scheduled times, but those scheduled times matter. They're important. They put us in connection with others. And so that's why uh, week after week after week we say that. Here are opportunities for you. There are many, many of them, but it helps to build community. Community doesn't happen in isolation of others. It happens with others. And so a part of our discipleship is learning, growing, speaking to each other, loving each other, knowing each other, right? Got to know each other. 
That's what God put us into this spiritual community. And so it's just deliberate practices that we're committed to. And so the first thing we see is like we've had some wonderful models, some people who have shown us, Abraham, the friend of God, Moses, the person that God spoke to and gave us the standards uh, that we, we saw we break. And so we need Christ and the grace that he brings. And we see through all those people how they were pointing us toward Christ who's now come. But now we're running the race. We're in the race. We're the ones that are part of the journey and the track. But secondly, we think about what runners do. What is it, you know, what are you going to do? You wear the shortest shorts you can wear and the least amount of clothes that you can wear when you go run. You don't put on a heavy coat, right? You don't put on big boots to go run. You don't put on all this stuff. You, you strip down to the essentials. And so that's why the Bible says lay aside the weight. Lay aside every weight, it says, so that you're not encumbered, so that running this race of faith isn't difficult. So we lay down the weight. Throw off everything that hinders us, one translation says. So you notice that about runners. They shed the extra weight. They travel lightly. I see guys in my neighborhood sometimes with rucksacks on running, you know, and I know why they're doing that. I wouldn't do it personally, but I know why they're doing it. But when it comes down to it and we're competing and we want progress, runners put aside the extra weight. They put it down. They determine that they need to uh, be free and travel lightly. And so what is it when we think about in this analogy you know, for ourselves, what do you need to put down? This is pretty easy. We're humans. It's, we're, our list is going to be fairly similar when we start thinking about it. I think for a lot of us, what we need to put down is worry, anxiety, fear. Those kinds of things characterize all people. And they can be problematic when we think, I want to live a life of faith. Well, if we're going to live a life of faith, being able to put down worry and anxiety and fear is important. Jesus, uh, in Scripture, what, one of the things that he came to do for us is to take our cares upon himself, right? He says, uh, ca- the Scripture says, cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. Aren't you glad he cares for you? Isn't it uh, a relief to us to know there's someone who created everything, who cares about me as a, a person, who knows me and cares about me? And the Bible says, you can cast your care upon him because he cares for you. So everybody at some level is dealing with worry, anxiety. We talked about this in our small group time today, that one of the, uh, this is a time in human history in North America where mental illness and anxiety have ramped up to incredible levels for people, and a lot of it is because of the access that we have to media nonstop. You know, we're bombarded by information all the time, and we don't know how to deal with it. And so a lot of times people have an overwhelming sense of how life is uh, impacting them. They don't know what to do. Well, the Bible tells us what to do. It says, cast your care on him. The Bible says in another place, don't be anxious for anything. Don't worry about anything. But with in everything it says, make your request known to God. And it says, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the Bible says basically the antidote to worry is prayer. 
It's taking your concerns and your needs to God. It says, cast your, your care on him. Don't be, don't be anxious for anything. One person said uh, in a commentary I read long ago that worry is an unconscious form of blasphemy. Think about that. Worry is an unconscious form of blasphemy. Why would someone say it? Because basically what we're saying is, God, you're not big enough for this. I know you're big, but you're not big enough for this. No, there's no situation like that, right? Every situation that we face, God is absolutely big enough for. That's why the Bible says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, prayer is the antidote. Thanksgiving is the antidote. To be thankful in the midst of it, as difficult as that is, and I'm not standing here saying it's not. It is difficult. But it's our pathway in discipleship to be a thankful human, to thank God, to recognize that God hasn't abandoned us even though things can get hard at times, and that we come to him with our specific petitions, telling God, doesn't God know already? Well, of course he does. But he, he this relationship is the all a vital and important thing. So we come to him to flesh out this relationship and to express our faith. And God is pleased in our praying and he's pleased in our thankfulness. And God works in our praying even if it takes a long time. And sometimes it does. We, well, the Bible says don't quit, don't give up. We persevere in our praying and in God's timing he's, he works things out but he's always working things out. And we're invited, hey, if you want to know how to uh, ease your load and make the race easier to run, the Bible says in one uh, way, put down your worry, put down your your anxiety. But another uh, load that we need to probably unburden ourselves from, or, you know, some of this is, is definitely me stuff, I would say, but insecurity and concerns that you're not enough. You know, sometimes a burden that people are carrying is the sense that you're not enough. Well, that's probably accurate, okay? I've got bad news and good news. Bad news is that you're not enough. The good news is that Christ is enough. When Paul talked about ministry, he says, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but he says our sufficiency is of Christ. Well, that's good to know. I don't have enough, I'm not enough, but the one who is enough became my enough. Righteousness is his enough coming to you and making you enough. So, you know, sometimes we need the sense about ourselves reinforced in a healthier way. Yeah, it's true that I don't have everything that I need, but the one who has everything that I need loves me and owns me, bought me uh, through the blood of Christ. And so one of the things that we can put down, and I think God would tell us, hey, put that down, is our insecurity because he secured us and came to us. I think another weight that people might want to put down are issues like resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness. If we thought, okay, how am I going to run this race effectively? What do I need to put down? Well, for a lot of us, the load that we're carrying is bitterness and unforgiveness and stuff in relationships that if we let go of it, we'd be a lot more free, a lot better able to run the race. And these are weights that make us sluggish and cripple us and sideline us. Forgiveness, we've said before, is releasing people from our little prison. The word forgiveness means to release. And a lot of times what's happened is we've locked people into our little 
prisons and we don't let them out. We're going to keep them in there no matter what. And of course, sometimes what we're dealing with is deep, deep wound, wounds and hurts. You know, I've shared before, like going through life as a little kid who was molested by a relative and the wounds that I carried around all my life related to that. But the awareness, too, at a point that, like, I'm not going to trust that person while there's these unresolved things, but I also can't live with uh, malicious hatred in my heart toward him forever. I've got to let it go. And so sometimes it's like, we think about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. It's not uh, pretending as if it didn't happen. It's not holding uh, people responsible. Sometimes they need to be held responsible and accountable. But for our sake, it's letting them out and releasing the resentment and the bitterness and trusting them to God because guess what? He's just. And if they don't get right, they have to answer to him one day. So it's okay for me to release that person and trust that, hey, God is big enough to deal with this. I live my whole life with that kind of big thing. You know, uh, this is interesting, but like six months or so ago, the person that molested me as a kid called here, talked to Sheila, I think, because I got a message, call your uncle. And I'm like, "Mm, I'm not sure I'm doing that. And... I sat on that for several days and prayed about it and talked to some other people about it and phoned him, and he was in a recovery program making amends. So for the first time in my whole life, this person acknowledged what they had done to me. And I was able to, you know, I'd already forgiven him because it was the only thing I could do. But it was the first time in my life there was any sense of resolution around it. And so all I know is that for a lot of us, we're carrying some... uh, Stuff that until we let it go, we'll never be free to run this race in the way that God wants us to. We've got to be able to say, I'm going to sit it down. And like I said, that doesn't mean that that person's off the hook. Until they are right with God, they still have to deal with whatever they've done. It's for our sake that we forgive as much as anything. So we can be free. And that doesn't make it easy either. You know, I shared before, uh, for me... Part of the pathway that's been helpful to me was to get in therapy, to get uh, some counseling and help to think through how do I get over that. So, you know, I don't want to tell anybody, like, all this stuff is so easy. It's not. Sometimes it's complicated and hard, but worth it. Worth it. So we we think about what is this baggage that I'm carrying that's so hard and, and difficult? Well, sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's hurt and wounds and disappointment and frustration. And we can calcify into cynicism and it quenches our worship and wonder if we're not careful and our hearts uh, become hardened. Uh, So sometimes it's like just Jonathan touched on this earlier. I agree. Friction. You can't be part of community with other people without disagreeing with people sometimes. You're not just identical to everybody. You're going to disagree sometimes. And being part of spiritual community is going to be hard sometimes. And so uh, we should just accept that as a reality, that if we want to be part of something worthwhile, it's going to have its own set of uh, difficult things to uh, deal with sometimes. But if we don't deal with those things appropriately, our hearts become hard. So sometimes it's just like recognizing that um, everybody is just like me. 
we have good days and bad days and but sometimes we get hurt and wounded and uh, frustrated and we have to work on those uh, kinds of issues but one thing we know for sure the when you look at the what the old testament says about the new covenant god says that he came to take the old stony heart and give us a heart of flesh i came to give you a heart of flesh a soft heart in other words and so anything that uh is given us a hard heart of course is is um against the purpose that God had in sending Jesus to die for our sins and to be raised from the dead for our justification. And so that stony heart is not what the gospel is about. It's about giving us a soft heart. And God sees our broken hearts and he sees our wounds and the difficulty, but it is a part of what it means to be in community with other people. And, you know, sometimes uh, honest conversations help and, and uh, we, we just have to do the best that we can in relationship to each other. But th- those are just a few things we think about. Okay, if I'm running this race, what are the weights that I have to lay down? You might make your own list. God might speak to you clearly and say, look, put that down. It's an, it's an impediment. You can't run effectively while you're carrying that around. It may be something else. But the next thing that the Scripture teaches about running this race, this trek that we're on, is that, we lay aside the sin that entangles us. Lay aside the sin that entangles us. Let us lay aside every weight. Okay, weight is different than sin. And it's now, now talking about sin specifically. The sin that so easily entangles us. Sin is insidious and relentless. It's an everyday kind of uh, uh, issue. It ensnares, entangles some translations will say the sin that so easily besets us. It be, it's besetting. It lies in wait. It gestates. That's how James pictures it when he talks about temptation. He says when sin is fully grown, it gives for, uh, birth to what? Death. He says it gives forth birth to death. It's gestating. It's there. And so we think about running. Running is about progress even if it's slow, which mine is. I mean, what little I could do now. But sin is always regressive. Sin is never about progress. It's always about setting you back in some way. It always promises you something quickly as a relief with but what's in the fine print is complication. It's going to give you something or we wouldn't be attracted to it, but whatever it gives us is going to create complications that we didn't count on when we took the shortcut to get it and so because we're pursuing something outside God's will it's always regressive it'll take us off his path sin in our lives complicates and distorts it interferes with God's call on our life when we uh, transgress and when we act outside of God's God's will. Tie your shoelaces together and try to go for a walk. That's a good analogy for what it's like to have sin in our life, unrepentant sin and unconfessed sin that we have, we're not forsaking. Put cotton in your ears and try to hear what's happening around you. That's a good analogy for what it's like when we have sin in our life. It mutes the voice of God. Go read the penitent psalms where David wrote in uh, 
30, uh, 51st Psalm and the 32nd Psalm. And what all David does is pour out his heart about how devastating sin was in his life. He gave, I'm glad it's a humble account that's there for David to say, listen, the things that I did, I was a man after God's own heart, but my life became unnecessarily complicated because of the decisions that I was making. And you see the tragedy when he cast off restraint and how it put a big stick in the spokes of progress in his life. And we also see in this uh, passage, fourthly, that we live to run the race before us because it goes on and it says, you know, once we've done, once we've set aside the weight, once we laid, uh, laid aside the sin that entangles, then we run with endurance the course that's been marked out for us is the way one translation uh, puts it. In other words, God decides the course of our life, but we participate, we run, we do it deliberately and thoughtfully. We're, we remember that we're journeying, that we're, all the different analogies that we see in the Bible, what, we're, what are you? You're a pilgrim, right? You're just passing through. We've seen that in Hebrews, that you're, uh, the way we're characterized is like travelers, pilgrims, uh, sojourners, just passing through. We're on our way somewhere with God, and God gets to uh, make the directions clear to us and has. So we participate, and we don't just spectate. We get in there. So that's the problem sometimes is like we're just spectating. I don't just mean in church, but in life. You know, there, there's a deliberate way that we ought to move as disciples in the world, and we bring our faith along with us into every situation that we're, that we're in. But, you know, church is important, and the practice of our life together is important too. Some of you may have seen this movie a long time ago, Robin Williams' movie called The Dead Poets Society. I don't recommend it uh, necessarily just on in every way. But there, it was interesting that he uh, was talking about what life is, and he quotes Walt Whitman. And he says, the question, oh me, sin, or I'm sorry, so sad, recurring, what good amid these, oh me, oh my life? In other words, what is my life for? That's what he's asking. What good is my life? And he gives the, own, uh, the answer himself. He says, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. That's what life is. It, it is God who said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you're his workmanship. God made you, which I always like this thought, that he created us, and he... He says he created you for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, that you should perform them. So life is the, the contribution in some sense from your life. What is it that God's called you to? Well, for some of us, it's clear in our identity. We're parents. We're, uh, you know, I'm a pastor. That's part of the identity that God's given to me to live out and be faithful in. But whoever you are, he, he says that you contribute from your life kingdom realities, things that matter ultimately for his glory because God cares about his glory more than anything else. So we think sometimes I'll just have this little small obscure life. Just nobody knows much about me at all. But but the point is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how well known or little known we are. From where we are, God can take our life and contribution and it will be it will be meaningful because it's about God. It's for God.
So even if we're just a caregiver to somebody, well, are we, is it for God's glory? You know, whatever it is that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, the apostle says, do it all for the glory of God while we're on this God-directed trek. And then also the scripture shows us here to look to Jesus who loves us in verses 2 through 4. This is the important uh, part, a big important part of this passage. How, how do I stop myself from dropping out of the race? How do I keep going in the race? Looking unto Jesus, the scriptures. Looking unto Jesus, that's an important discipleship phrase. I have to re- remind myself of that often because I get my eyes off of Jesus and onto other things. What's distracting you from running the race? Sometimes it's others. You remember Simon Peter? that uh, Jesus told him how he was going to die. He says, you're, when you get to be an old, older man, you're going to be bound and led places you don't want to go. And we know that he was martyred. But he looks at the disciple whom Jesus loved, it says in the Gospel of John. He says, what about him? And I like how the King James puts it. It says, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. That's what Jesus says. I like the poetry in that. He says, that's not your business. That guy's not your business. You follow me. Sometimes we're looking around at everybody else and and we need to have our eyes on Jesus. That's what he he is saying. Look to me, not not to others, to people that might disappoint you or frustrate you. Look to Jesus. Your circumstances and difficulties and trials those are things sometimes are, the phrase in the scripture here says is fix your gaze on Jesus. But what do we get fixated on? And I can tell you from experience, sometimes when life is difficult, my eyes go off Jesus and on my problems. They go on my difficulties, on my trials. Well, the Bible says here the answer is get your eyes back on Jesus. Get your eyes on the one who loves you completely who gave himself uh, thoroughly without reservation to rescue you and I. Sometimes a struggle for me that I've confessed is comparison. Comparison. What am I doing? I'm looking at how God's blessing other people. I'm looking at like how that church is doing or how these people are doing. And it's a pitfall and it's failure because what? My eyes are off of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want me comparing myself to what he's doing somewhere else. He he wants to be, for me, the one who my devotion is directed toward and my love is is directed toward and who I accept whatever comes from his hand that's going to be good because it will be good, right? If it comes from him, it's going to be good. Sometimes we lose sight of Jesus because we're fixated on other things. We can pursue vocation. Is it possible for a person's life to get out of of balance around their vocation, the calling to work? Of course it is. Sometimes we're out of balance when it comes to relationships. Relationships matter, but unless those relationships are being lived out related to who Christ is, then a person can get caught up in relationships in a way that's unhealthy to the trajectory of their discipleship and their journey sometimes it's recreation in our life that can be out of balance we can love uh, sports and recreation so much that we've become conflicted and our sight is off of Jesus 
education. You take any good thing and you make it primary to the exception of your worship. And it has become for us in Bible understanding idolatry. And idols are always bad. Always. So keeping our eyes on Jesus is the cure for that that we're given in Scripture. And there's no clear message in Hebrews. We've you know, been here for quite a while now than the supremacy of Christ. If he is indeed supreme in our life, how apparent is it in our priorities? If he's supreme, it must be apparent in our priorities. If we say Jesus is Lord, we don't want him saying to us one day, uh, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one that does the will of my Father who's in heaven. It, uh, saying that he's Lord is not the same thing as committing to his uh, lordship. And, of course, we do it imperfectly, but we acknowledge that Jesus is supreme. He's Lord. That's the clear message here in Hebrews. He joyfully persevered to secure and rescue and redeem us. That's what the scripture says. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He hated what he had to endure for our salvation. But he he persevered through it and he modeled for us true life in persevering faithfully through what he hated. There's no way to truly see into that and not be changed by it. I don't know how we can see what Jesus did and it not bring out of us devotion. That's what we were talking about earlier today as well. Is our life devout? Well, devout doesn't mean perfect, but devout means it has a singular focus, it has a direction, it has something compelling that is uh, attracting us forward with him. So we allow what he did to do to affect what we do, how we are. And this is not talking about a debtor's ethic. That's how uh, John Piper, you know, warns and cautions us. It's not cautions us. It's not a debtor's ethic. We can't repay Jesus. There's no. There's nothing we could do to repay him. And that's not what salvation is. It's grace. It's a gift. It's just saying that the life that's affected by salvation is going to be uniquely different. It's going to be a worshiping life. That's what it looks like to know him. It's what knowledge of him when it's a faith relationship does. Jesus begins to touch everything in our life. Sometimes that's a, uh, always, I would guess, and at least in my experience, it's a, pro, uh, a process. But we, he gets access to all our compartments. You know how humans are? We like our compartments. It's like, okay, well... This is my work compartment over here, and this. No, he gets into everything. We went to um, a youth conference when I used to be brave enough to uh, chaperone youth events at Jekyll Island, and uh, the speaker there, I remember, sharing an illustration that he was renting a house on Jekyll for that summer while he spoke it. You know, they had weekly; they call it Super Wow. Some of you may have gone to those, but uh, I loved this speaker. But he said he was renting this house, and in the house there was this one room that was locked up. That, like the whole the whole time he stayed there, the whole summer, it's like in his mind this mystery. You know what's in there, but he couldn't get in there because it was off limits in the rental uh, situation. But I think that when we think about our life with God, 
he he has the key to every room. You know, there's not some place that we go, okay, this room's locked up, it's off limits to you. No, he wants access to everything, and especially probably the thing that we want to keep cordoned off in the dark. That's where we want him to get to the most because it's probably where the secrets and the the stuff that are the hugest impediments to our discipleship really are. And so we open that door and we let the fresh air and the light in, and that's when our life is most likely to improve as followers of, of Christ. Honesty. So hard to come by sometimes in in a Christian life. It's like we talk about truth and we talk about honesty, but and living it out is a lot harder than we might want to let on. That we say, "Come on in. I'm going to open this door up, God. I'm going to let. I'm going to give you access to this thing I've been hiding away." Well, that's where freedom comes from. That's where light streams in. It's where the the air starts to get fresh again, and we start to feel like, "Okay, I, even though I didn't want to do this, this is now wh- what I needed to do. It's obvious to me now." Giving Jesus access to the whole, to everything, He's the only one that can take. When we feel weary, which we sometimes will, this it's the, we run the race with endurance because it's going to feel wearying. The word for race in this passage is is the word we get the English word agony from. That's the word race, and so shin splints. If you ever tried to run, that used to be a problem for me. They say get better shoes, but you get shin splints. Side stitches, right, when you try to run. Plantar fasciitis, anybody ever? I'm stretching, stretching, stretching. Blisters, fatigue, all that enters in. But uh, as we follow Jesus, essentially we think about the spiritual equivalent of all of that will happen to us, but we don't quit. We press on because we know that it's worth it. God saw us as worth it, and the good news is that Jesus will... See to it that you cross the finish line. He'll see to it that you cross the finish line. Ray Ortland said, Jesus is not a life coach for winners who want to improve their game. He is the rescuer of losers who are squandering their chance at life. So what we shouldn't hear in this idea of running the race is like, boy, if you don't give it your best. No, he's already made it uh, across the finish line, and he carries us. But the, the truth is he transforms us in the journey, and that's God's purpose is for us to be different along, along the way, and that difference becomes our, wish, our witness to others. We're going to have our uh, time of communion now, and so if you haven't observed the Lord's table with us before, the way that we do it is a method that's called intinction, which is... Uh, one of us will hold a cup and one of us will have the bread and you will take a piece of bread and you dip it into the cup and it represents the elements. But also, I know that there are some people who uh, uh, still are uncomfortable or have uh, you know life needs that make it better for them to observe it in a different way. And Jonathan is going to take the sealed cups that we had been using before. Those are available on this side and he's going to have a station for you to come and participate in that way so you you do have a option that helps you to be comfortable in observing the Lord's Supper. But in uh, we're going to stand together and we'll just invite you to come forward and Alvin and Varney are going to have the cup and the bread here 
and also uh, Jonathan will come and have a station over here. And we invite you, if you have uh, trusted Christ as your Savior, to participate in communion. That means you recognize that he died for your sins and was raised for your justification. And you've said yes to his free offer of salvation and forgiveness then uh, we certainly invite you to observe the Lord's Supper with us today. As we remember him, that's what he said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me, his flesh that was pierced for us, for our transgressions, his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins is what's represented in these elements. And I want to pray for us, and then we'll just invite you, if you will, to come. Father, we're so grateful for the uh, sacrifice that was made for us to give us hope and to give life meaning and to help us to know you. And so we pray now as we observe these elements as an aspect of our worship, God, that we'll remember that you are the bread of life, God, that your blood is the new covenant and uh, your it's the New Testament, new covenant and your blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. And we thank you and we do this in Christ's name.